Without further ado, welcome to the latest Balderton podcast. I'm Ben Goldsmith, and today I'm here with Roland Lamb, who's the founder and CEO of Rolly, who have invented a completely new musical instrument. Balderton first invested in, in Rolly, I think, just over a year ago now, 12.8 million A round. Uh, and we've never looked back. It's a fantastic, a fantastic invention, only launched the latest iteration about a month ago. Is that right? That's right, Ben, and thank you so much for uh, having me. It's a real pleasure to be oh, here. My to, pleasure. Uh, get to talk a bit about Rolly and what we're building with the Seaboard. And as you uh, mentioned, we just launched the Seaboard Rise um, four weeks ago, and now it's um, starting to ship all around the world. And for maybe listeners that haven't yet encountered the Seaboard Rise or the Seaboard Grand that come before it, what is the elevator pitch for what the Seaboard is, what it does, and how it's how it's changing music? So the Seaboard is a new musical instrument, which is an evolution of uh, the piano keyboard. And uh, what it allows musicians to do is to control multiple parameters of sound um, in real time in a way that was never before possible. So with a piano, you can kind of control one dimension of the sound as you play. But with a seaboard, you can um, uh, basically move, use sort of very intuitive gestures, like uh, the kind of gestures you might use to bend a string on a guitar or to create like a vibrato on a violin, but in this kind of keyboard format. And what that means is um, you have one instrument, um, but you can access the dynamic um, sound palette and kind of range of all of these other instruments. Um, so it brings like um, true expression to electronic music. Because to look at, you know, having seen it and played it very badly four weeks ago, it looks most like a piano keyboard. But then as you say, you can do different things to it. You don't just press the keys, you can also stroke it, you can stroke alongside the keys, you can press them with different amounts of pressure and they make different sounds. Also in the performance, you, uh, when the instrument was performed, it kind of moved through jazz, through uh, orchestral music and onto dubstep. So it's quite, it's really quite something that you guys have invented. The question that comes from that is, is you are now Roland Lamb in 2015, the man behind this quite fantastic musical instrument. How did that come about? Because at one stage, that would have just been an idea in your head. And there are probably fellow inventors listening to this podcast who are at square one. And they've got an idea for whatever it might be and have very little clue as to what is step one to trying to squeeze out that new industry-changing idea and actually making it real. Well, I think the most important ingredient in any invention is... Uh, self-confidence and passion. You have to have total passion for what you're doing and confidence that um, whatever you're working on or inventing is important. Um, to some extent or another, it has to be important to you as an inventor um, because if it's not, it will be hard to kind of get through all of the different um, challenges and difficulties that come with um, bringing about something quite new into the world. So in my case, um, about six years ago, I um, was doing a degree at the Royal College of Art. I was a master's student there. And um, before that, actually, I had a background in philosophy. So I'd been studying classical Chinese and Sanskrit uh, comparative philosophy. And, but I was always interested in design and technology. And so I went to the Royal College of Art and um, did a design degree there. And at the time, I felt like, even though I was interested in design, a lot of my um, fellow students were all like designing chairs and tables, and I couldn't really relate to that and get excited about it. But I was a musician, I'd played keyboards my whole life, and I always felt like 
there was this latent potential in any keyboard performance where you strike a key and then on the keyboard you don't you can't really do anything after that with a sound you're kind of done and i felt like why not be able to like um modulate the sound and kind of massage uh the the key in different directions and 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 in so doing to trans like transform the sound in the way you would with your voice or with a violin and um so i got very very excited about the idea and actually i went on a, a trip to india with my wife and um uh, while i was in india i started drawing all these different sort of sketches of this new instrument and um i came up with the idea that um instead of having separate keys you could create a surface that was like a continuous wave and i got very excited about this idea and actually um we were in jaipur and i i had to go back to delhi to catch a flight and i spent all day um in my um hotel room sketching like kind of crazily all these um new ideas and making videos like of myself playing the sketches and singing along like this was the idea that i had and and was that incredibly important in forming what would eventually become the seaboard ground which was the first the first invention without that process of sketching and videotaping yourself and reappraising those things do you think you would have got there or oh no not at all i mean and that was really the moment of kind of seizing on the idea and in fact um uh, i still have those videos and the current um seaboard rise is very much like what was imagined in those videos 6 years ago in fact i was so excited about it that i didn't realize um i had completely uh, mistaken when my flight was and i ended up being stranded <laughs> in delhi so so i think that kind of like passion and preoccupation with an idea is a really important thing that then carries you through so it can't be just a whimsical thing that you've seized upon as a bit of a business opportunity if you are a, if you are an inventor it needs to be something that you feel almost from within some a change you need to make I definitely think the passion needs to be there and um and and part of it is that when ideas are in their early stages a lot of people won't get them they won't understand them and you have to be good at filtering different kinds of feedback and understanding wh- what forms of feedback are really valid and you should take on and and which are the voices that you shouldn't listen to so you need to have good judgment about that but you also need to have kind of passion and determination because um in the earliest phases if you're inventing some something that's very new other people won't get it or they won't understand it fully you mentioned that you had a lot of challenges taking roly from idea all the way through to execution what's the toughest challenge what's almost the toughest moment or the toughest uh, process that you had to go through when you were taking uh, that concept f- from a sketch all the way through to to prototype um by far the most difficult challenge is integration and like continuous integration as you scale. So the first like basic, you know, couple years I was working on this, I just worked on it on my own and I had a background in philosophy, so I didn't know anything about like engineering or design or material science or, you know, programming. And in order to build uh the first prototypes i built like hundreds of prototypes i learned a lot about all those disciplines and i was kind of working on my own and and that was a pretty steep learning curve but i could learn things and as i learned them i could kind of integrate an understanding of how everything was working in my head then around 2012 uh we raised our first angel investment and i um hired a few people and you know started and and each of the uh like uh people that all the engineers that i was hiring were much more qualified than me so suddenly i had someone who was like 10 times better than me at material science and 10 times better at me at programming or electronic engineering or or whatnot 
and yet uh, uh, the progress of like um, development like massively slowed down and I, and it didn't make any sense because I thought these guys are 10 times better and now I have 10 of them I should be moving 100 times as fast but um, when you're building something new the integration of all of those elements is very very difficult and you know, in my head, even though I wasn't very good at any of those disciplines, I could kind of integrate all the points really well. And then suddenly I had 10 people who were really good at one thing, but they didn't really understand what everyone else was working on. And I was the only person who really understood all the different pieces of the puzzle. As we've continued to grow, that's continued to be a challenge. The more that we grow, the more like it's difficult to find the integration points and the, the kind of multidisciplinary leaders and communicators who can help to build out the vision. And is that is the solution to that intermediation between different experts or walking working towards the same goal? Is that where your leadership as an inventor, as an entrepreneur has to come in? I think in the short term, yes. In the long term, uh, you know, one can build cross-functional teams. It's just that you start end up ending up looking for people who have like three unusual skills. Like they're really good at music and they're good at material science, but they also know quite a lot about um, sensor engineering and firmware. So it, it's very difficult to find that person. You know, and and, and but over time you can do that. And also over time, there's ways that you can sort of. Um, create communication systems and project management systems and product management systems like that allow some of this to happen. But then you end up having to fight to some extent or another the baggage that comes with those systems. Because a lot of those systems are designed um, to replicate the known and they don't handle the unknown very well. So it's interesting as an entrepreneur, I mean, you've been saying like there's a, a little bit of natural internal conflict between the role of an entrepreneur uh, and the role of an inventor. Um, because as you're scaling as an entrepreneur, you you have to normalize a lot of different processes. But then as an inventor, if you're trying to push new ideas and push the unknown, you, unknown, you have to um, be willing to fight some of the kinds of systems and bureaucracies that people are used to. So do you have any tips for up-and-coming entrepreneur inventors who have uh, an idea that's that's anyway along that stage? Because they'll come up against the same hurdle, I would imagine. As an entrepreneur, they will be forcing themselves to normalize, to make a business out of their invention and earn some money, make it amortizable. But the inventor in them won't go to sleep. It will, I imagine the brain of an inventor wants to keep improving, keep pushing the idea. Are there any tips that help reconcile those two pieces of you or is it just an internal battle? I think that some of the insights um, around like the lean startup um, can also be applied to lean invention where you can um, begin to you know, prototype things really rapidly and come up with the shortest distance for validating an idea or validating, you know, the possibility of something. I think spending more time communicating is important, especially if you begin as a doer, realizing that you're going to have to spend a lot more time sort of sharing the vision and communicating the vision um, can be helpful. Uh, all things considered, though, um, the, the only real way you can do that is to accept the necessity of having very different um, 
like time horizons that you're working towards. So you'll have short-term sort of um, uh, horizons, which will all be about like shipping something and selling and moving. And then medium-term, which is about a responsible, like growth-oriented product roadmap. And then long-term, which can be about kind of the new idea and the inventive idea and the possibilities. And if you have all three of those, then you can begin to sort of segment in your mind, like, well, you know, I've got to focus on this to get the product out, but then I can push this towards a later release. Um, so that that for me helps to manage those different um, sides of my personality and also um, my vision for how to build um, value into the business, which is that you need to build value in at all of those different stages. You mentioned before that you, of course, now have built a team, a multidisciplinary team. And talking to my colleague Gilles, who's our talent director here at Balderson, helps all of our portfolio companies with hiring, with growth, etc. He's particularly fascinated, I think is the right word, and particularly impressed with how Roly have built the team because it is so multidisciplinary. Uh, you know, as you said, you need on you need uh, engineers, you need musicians, you need all sorts of talents under one roof. Explain how you did that, how you went from Roland sitting there with his pen, with his sketchbook, through to this team that you have now. Well, I think you know you learn a lot through the mistakes that you make, and um, that first time uh, of like hiring ten people and then having things slow down when I expected them to go a hundred times faster, <laughs> then I, I kind of woke up and said, "Okay, I have to approach this in a smart way." And it's funny because in the first couple of years when I was building prototypes, my uh, background in in philosophy, for example, um, didn't really come in that handy. You know, I mean, it's a surprise. Well, you know, um, I, I, the only thing I can say is that um, you know Chinese and Sanskrit logic are, are difficult disciplines, and they're not completely unlike C plus plus programming. <laughs> but um, but in all honesty, when I did um, sort of start really thinking about what does it mean to build a team and what does it like mean to build a culture? Um, the fact that I'd spent many, many years studying cultures and studying, um, because w- what I actually studied was a cross-cultural um, philosophy, basically. So I was studying Sanskrit and Chinese and understanding how the linguistic and cultural systems of you know in different parts of the world impacted how people think. Um, and so... I started to sort of leverage some of those ideas and thinking about um, how do we build a team? How do we create like the rituals and the practices and uh, the ideas that can allow us to have um, not only an extraordinarily multidisciplinary team, but a multicultural team um, and, you know, people from all over the world um, uh, where people are really working together and um, so it was an, also an iterative process. And I think similarly to, you know, the way that it was just talking about with invention, we have sort of short, medium, and long-term projects around how to build a great culture. Um, some of the short-term things were just small steps that I kicked off pretty near from the beginning when I founded Roly. Like, um, every day um, we start at... Um, uh, 8.30 and we have a morning meeting where everyone on the team says what they're going to do. But we've just continued that now. We're 80 people and we go around in a big circle. and 80 people every day. Everybody says what they're going to do for the day. And, and then uh, at 12 o'clock when you're done, you have lunch. And then at one, <laughs> and then at one o'clock, we all um, sit and have, uh, for the last couple of years we've been doing this, we all sit together and have um, a vegetarian lunch. Um, wonderful and uh, and you know it's wonderful because uh, it's also just nice to eat a nice lunch and and um, it's an important part of like um, enjoying one's working life uh, but also 
what I figured was that one of the big problems that happens as you grow a team is that people get to be slightly separated into their sub-teams or their sub-disciplines, and that really the foundation of all communication um, and all kind of uh, like alignment of values is a basic... Uh, level of um, social understanding and recognition. Like you have to start out by uh, recognizing um, just the humanity and other people and getting to know them and knowing about their like who they are and where they come from. And so actually sitting together and eating every day and we generally take an hour off for lunch where we really just like sit together as a team and we're not doing a lot of work during that time. It's really nice because we get to connect as a team. And then, you know, another thing we do in that regard is once a month we have a friends and family dinner where all the members of team can bring along their family or friends and we all sit together and have a big meal. So once people have been, you know, at Roly for a while, they know everybody on the team uh, else on the team pretty well and they know their friends and family so it does have this sense of social cohesion um, which really drives the actual business and project oriented communication that's yeah i think that's what i was going to ask which is that is a phenomenal approach to company culture because that is taking time out of every single day you know other entrepreneurs will be listening saying why you take an hour out of every day which could be used on building the product or what have you uh, and you do that, you commit to that, but you do see a, a demonstrable, palpable effect on the business. Absolutely. I mean, whether it's thinking about retention rates or motivation or commitment um, and communication, you know, it has a huge impact. Plus, to be honest, um, the sort of modern, um, urban, corporate approach to eating is it's kind of insane. And so basically, let's okay. say you have... This the idea of like microwaving a meal and eating it at your desk kind of thing. Yeah, well, not just that. I mean, I remember before we started the lunch program, you know, we had 10 people or 15 people at the time, and um, it would be like 1 o'clock, and then everyone goes out and scavenge. It's like scavenging. <laughs> you, you go out, and, and also then you end up spending 5 or 10 pounds or whatever, and you get like a really poor meal. So it's like really poor value, and you're sort of in this constant state of like um, stress, like where's my next meal going to be at? And you have to go out and scavenge. Yeah, and so together attitude. Yeah, it is. It's like hunter. It's like in the middle of a modern workday, you're out and being a hunter-gatherer. So it seemed completely uncivilized to me. And uh, and I think that um, the Roly team agrees. <laughs> Another thing I want, wanted to talk to you about, you know, you've got this interesting background, you came up with this idea, and now Roly's in full flow. You're a fully-fledged product business now. You know, yeah. the, the initial grand was all handmade in London, I believe, and now you've moved to the rise. You've actually become a company that uses production line methodology to create more products at a slightly lower price point. I mean, how did you manage that transition? What were the drivers behind uh, making that decision? And is, is it working for you guys? So, um, to answer those questions in a slightly different order, um, the fundamental driver is about accessibility. Like, the Seaboard is a great new musical instrument, and we want to make it accessible to everyone. And um, the tools and processes of you know, mass manufacturing were necessary to make it like a viable product to be shipped all around the world. And you know, now we're in um, kind of global um, retail. And, you know, setting up the right kind of manufacturing solution and systems was necessary to make that possible. In terms of um, the, you know, how we approached it, I think that um, 
we we did it very iteratively. So you know, we like the fact that we started out by uh, building things ourselves meant that we learned a lot about the whole kind of process um, of of manufacturing and quality and testing, um, and then actually outsourcing that or working with other manufacturers was a relatively small step from that point. Um, but I do think that one has to get to be extraordinarily operationally focused to um, you know, deliver on the promise of a great idea or an early stage product into something um, that you can actually successfully ship all around the world. And that's, I think that probably applies... Uh, to whether you're hand making it in London or you're mass producing it overseas, you need to be operationally absolutely on top of your game. Otherwise, the product won't be uh, all it could be. I suppose. Yeah, I think the other um, you know big uh, insight that's come for me, and um, uh, it's come like I fully understood this only recently, um, which is that um, like quality is everything. And when I say that, I'm not using everything as a proxy for saying that it's important. I'm saying literally every single thing that ever happens in your business is part of your quality strategy. So the way that you greet someone in the morning, like when they come in the door to work, um, or the kind of uh, way that you run your like um, uh, interview process or uh, your review process or the way that you think about um, like how people are paid, every detail will end up being part of the quality of the experience um, of your customers because um, there's so many um, like different like elements of conversations and decisions that the team will make. Um, and if you want to have a high-quality product, you, you have to think about every process and system um, within the company. And so um, when, you're, when you're shipping out a few products, you think about quality like, okay, I got everything ready to go. I'm going to check it. I'm going to test it. Looks good. Let's ship it out the door. But then as the products get to be more complex and the supply chain gets to be more diffuse, you realize that... Um, uh, quality is not just like even a set of systems. It's like a complete, um, it's a, almost a spiritual orientation for the whole company. It's a mindset. It is yeah. everything, as you say. And I suppose the tip for the entrepreneur that comes out of that is, is think a lot longer and harder about every single thing you do in your business. If it's as fundamental as how you greet your employees or how you greet guests through the door in the morning through to every little, I suppose, touch point with your business. An entrepreneur should be on top of each one of those little things. Absolutely. You, you really have to take, I think you have to take quite a holistic approach to this. Otherwise, what will happen is you'll, you'll do great on nine out of ten things, and then the tenth thing will kill you. Basically, it's the tenth thing they remember. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, there's, you know, the, the, like what you're doing when you do man, mass manufacturers, you're setting up this, this like hugely long chain of different elements, and everything has to work along that chain. And if if one or another link. Um, is you know breaks in that chain, then the whole chain doesn't work. Um, so you really have to like invest in quality across a very very broad uh, chain. Um, and um, and I think it's not just the, the quality of the give the product that you're putting out at that moment, but it's the quality of the organization and the products that it will like produce over time. And basically, if you don't invest in that early, the more the team grows, the harder it is to to then exert you know individual control. And I notice you talk. You know, whether I, 
I ask about product or team, you will answer as one. Product and team are interwoven, it seems, in the Roly philosophy. If there's, you know, I, I think we, we're, we're coming close to our time limit. If there's one tip that you could give to a future uh, investor entrepreneur, what would, that, what would that piece of advice be? I think it would be um, to always remember and the different kind of ups and downs uh, that come in building a business um, that um, you have to find joy in your work. Um, because at the end of the day, you're trying to build something that is going to have an impact on people's lives um, and they're going to like it and they're going to buy your product and use your product and help you build your business because you're bringing them something that they value. Um, but you have to also find some value in the work that you're doing. Um, and it's really important in terms of the long term, you know, not burning out. Because the thing about being an entrepreneur is you, you always have this sense that it's endless. Like there's an endless thing, set, like list of things that you could be doing. And there's, it's never enough. You can never do enough. Um, and I think that uh, that's a lot of weight to carry. So, so the, the, for me, the one thing that's really important for entrepreneurs at just a very high level is to be able to garner some strength from real uh, enjoyment um, in the process of work itself. And if you find yourself not enjoying it, you're doing it wrong? Well, I think, um, you know, take a step back. It's fine to, you know, not uh, be enjoying every little task. Like, it's not fun to um, have to let people go or it's not fun to sometimes have to kill a project that some team members, like, are really passionate about. Um, but I think that when you, t you take a step back um, to say, like, is this is this really bringing you know, meaning for me? Am I enjoying this? Am I getting something out of this? Um, and uh, kind of remembering why you got started doing it in the first place. Thank you very much, Roland. Well, thank you very much, Ben. What a pleasure to talk with you today. Pleasure was all mine. <laughs>